the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. I have for you today the last show, the last interview of 2020. It's with someone I've wanted to talk to for quite some time, Hall of Fame songwriter Jeff Berry. It's a good one. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, you can do so. Go to thepaulleslie.com, up at the top, click the button that says support the show. It only takes a few seconds, it makes a world of difference, and is most appreciated. Now, let's get into the interview and Happy New Year, folks. Hi, Paul. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me just say I'm very eager and excited. We've got in our presence one of the top songwriters in American music. Although he's filled other roles like record producer and singer. He's an inductee in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and it's true, he co-wrote some classics like He Kissed Me, Be My Baby, Da Do Run Run, and so on. We could keep on going, but this interview is going to take us off the beaten path a little bit, and I just want to say, Jeff Berry, it's a great honor to be interviewing you. Well, it's, um, it's an honor to be interviewed. It's uh holiday season. Hello to everybody out there. Hope everybody's having the best holiday season they can under the non-holiday season conditions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was telling you on the phone one time about how I was playing a song that you co-wrote on the radio, on Jimmy Buffett's Radio Margaritaville. I was playing Montego Bay. And that song always got uh, a tremendous reaction. And uh, I know that there's an interesting story behind that song. Yes, it is. As far as uh, you know, writing songs, uh, it's I love to write story songs. And uh, I had been to Montego Bay on my honeymoon with Ellie Greenwich, but Bobby Bloom went there a lot back in the day to the point where the hotel that he stayed in he used to pick him up at the airport and and so on and so forth. And um, we were we, chatting one day, sitting around with a guitar, and um, he said, well, let, let's write a song about Montego Bay and uh, let's base it on your experiences there. So I said, well, let's... He, he told me how... He goes down there and what the routine is. And I said, well, well, let's do it chronologically. Well, they say that Montego Bay may be one of the, maybe the first pop reggae records. We didn't really try to make it reggae, but uh, there's an interesting story in the production too, which I'll tell you. But so I said, well, okay, so how do you go, how do you go down to Jamaica? And he said, well, I take Bullock, British overseas. Airlines. So that's the way the song goes. It starts off, Vernon will meet me when the Boac lands. So he used to stay at this hotel all the time, and they would send this guy Vernon to meet him at the airport. 
So it said, Vernon will meet me when the Boak lands. Keys to the MG will be in his hand. Vernon would bring him an MG to drive. He's, and then it goes, adjust to the driving, and I'm on my way. It's all on the right side in Montego Bay. So the steering wheel and the, the road, you're on the right side as opposed to here. And then that's the first verse. <laughs> kind of strange for a pop song. And, and the second verse is, second verse is, Gillian will, Gillian will meet me when, uh, Gillian will meet me like a brother would. This, when he gets to the hotel, this character there named Gillian would meet him. And it's, Gillian will meet me like a brother would. I think I remember, but it's twice as good. How cool the rum is from his silver tray. I thirst to be thirsty in Montego Bay. That's the second verse. <laughs> the whole verse is just about having a drink with Gillian when he gets there. <laughs> and then he goes into the little chorus, you know, come see me, love, come see me, Montego Bay. And then the last verse is, I, I lay on a lilo till I'm lobster red. And the lilo is what they call the little rubber rafts, I guess, there. I lay on a lilo till I'm lobster red. I still feel the motion here at home in bed. Did I forget the next line. Do you do that? Um, but then it says, you ain't been till you've been high, Montego Bay. Because they used to get high down there. I mean, I knew the main activity. And that's the whole lyric. But it, it, it was just a different kind of song and different sounding song. So I, I'm always surprised at how many people know it. And uh, it's it's a what I call a sunny song. You know, it's a mm -hmm. summer song. When you when you hear it, it, it feels sunshiny around. And and the story about the production is, so as usual, I don't I don't go in the studio until I feel I have something to record, and I'm sure I had something else besides that. But you know, I booked the the best band available in New York and went into the studio with the studio guys and came out with a track that I hated. It just had no charm. It just it just didn't fit the song. So I jumped it and I found a young band. You know, the early twenties, late teens, who knows? And brought them in the studio. First time they were in a recording studio and passed out the chord sheet, which is what I do. I don't go in with arrangements. I go and we do head arrangements. And they were looking around at this. They were just thrilled to be in a studio. Anyway, the track was a little better. It was younger and looser, but it, I jumped it. Didn't feel right. And I said, Bobby, when we're in my office. And you're sitting across the desk, and I'm tapping on my desk, and you're playing the guitar, and we're singing. I love it. I said, let's go in the studio and do that. And that's what we did. We went in the studio. We hung a mic. We took the key out on the piano. went ding, 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 got the key. And he and I stood at the mic and clapped our heads. That was the clap track. And we sang as we were clapping. Vernon will meet me when the Boak lands. Keys to the MG will be in his hand. And we went through the whole song, clapping and singing. And then we 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 put on earphones and overdubbed every single instrument on that record ourselves. I played some I I was banging on the side of a steel snare drum. That's what that metallic sound is. And and you know, some silly dumb bass part, but it's it it worked. And uh, the last thing we did, 
was uh, take off the hand clap vocal and and put on a real vocal. And and that's how that's how the track was made. It was real fun and it has that handmade Jamaican everybody just got together and just started playing kind of feel. <laughs> and that's the story. <laughs> Lots of fun. Well, I I got to say I love it. I I love it. I don't know if you ever saw this commercial, but Montego Bay was used in a really great Publix grocery store commercial. Uh, what is Publix is a grocery chain? Yeah, it's a Florida-based. They're in Florida, Georgia, and I think Southern Alabama, maybe South Carolina uh. too. And, you know, they always have kind of a, a beach. There's a, a slightly beach element to Publix. Publix with a, an X at the end. And they had mm. one of the coolest commercials ever. And it had Montego Bay. And if I remember correctly, it was um, in like the late 90s. But I'm curious, what's the strangest use you've ever observed, seen, or heard for a Jeff Berry song? In, a com in commercials? In a commercial or an unexpected place in a movie or anything, really. Well, um, by the way, there's an Applebee's uh, major commercial out now with uh, Sugar Sugar. And <laughs> I saw that. Featuring Sugar Sugar. I, I would think the most unexpected, it was either in, in a movie, it was either in um, Full Metal Jacket or Platoon. One of those kind of Scorsese-ish heavy war movies. But the scene was, uh, I guess, World War II. The American, the, the, the GIs are attacking this thatched hut, muddy village, and the bullets are flying and in the mud, and you can hear the bullets smacking in the mud and dying and screaming and war. And and in the background, they're playing, go into the chapel and where... That was what they used as score for that scene. And I said to myself, now that's, that juxtaposition is effective. It's very, very heavy. And actually, it has stuck in my mind. Are we recording? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, good. Hi, folks. Um, <laughs> here's one for you. Here's one for you. That, that scene stuck in my head and relates to my life. Because people say, oh, man, you must have had the greatest time back in the day. And I say, well, you know what? Yeah, the music was fun and so on and so forth. But my personal life was, you know, attacking a, a muddy village. It was uh, the juxtaposition between my my personal life and my professional life were, were pretty different. And um, that's why today when I talk to people, people always talk about a a book or a, you know, a Broadway show or something. I say, okay, but no dancing. All right, let's, let's take a different tack here. <laughs> but, um, I would say that was the, the, the usage, uh, that got my attention. Somebody pointed out in uh, this app called IMDB, uh, which is all about movie and TV, that my songs have been used in over 400 movies and TV shows. Just amazing over the years, of course. Just amazing. And I obviously haven't seen them all, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but 
but that that that's an odd that's an odd one. I, I another one that was kind of funny. I think it, the movie's called The Wedding Planner. Oh yeah, Matthew McConaughey and um, uh, Jennifer somebody. Jennifer, Lopez. I, I forget. Yes, yes, and she's a wedding planner, and he's coming to do uh, to plan a wedding, and uh, he wants to use "I honestly love you," and uh, she says, "No, no, 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 you can't do that. The marriage would be like a two-year marriage. That's it. <laughs> that song is for a two-year marriage." So I, I don't remember. I don't know if I saw the whole movie or any of it, but supposedly McConaughey sings it in the movie. Hmm. <laughs> What song from your catalog would you say has had the most success in terms of more people covered this song than any of them? Wow. Well, I obviously never counted, but Be My Baby, I suppose. I suppose. The, the song to me that has the most interesting covers is a song... Uh, more obscure than uh, Montego Bay even is a song uh, I wrote myself called uh, Walking in the Sun. Oh, yeah. Uh, which um, has been recorded by Glenn Campbell. And on the uh, if you flip over the Glenn Campbell coin, I would think he'd come up with Percy Sledge, who also recorded it. And Percy Sledge being a quintessential R&B artist, I guess, of the evening, uh, when a man loves a woman, you know. But two different records, obviously, totally different. And I found that real interesting. And some very quirky people have recorded that song. And it's always interesting. B.B. King recorded it. I'm always, I'm always surprised and, and uh, really quite thrilled by the different, cool people who have found that song and recorded it. It's it's a song I wrote about my experience. It, it, it Not about it, but it came about for when I was a kid. My father was blind, and I was uh, walking with him in Manhattan once, and the sun was setting, and it was late. It was probably in the fall, because it was very cold, and my father said, uh, and we were walking to the subway to go back to Brooklyn and uh, it was getting chilly and my father said is the sun out across the street and it was because of the angle of the sun so um, that stuck in my head and in the, in the 70s I sat down to write some songs for myself and uh, out came uh, even a blind man can tell when he's walking in the sun I'm probably the only songwriter in the world who would have come up with that but well, in doing research for this interview, I went and I listened to some of the versions, including the Percy Sledge, which which I thought, I mean, anything Percy sings, sang was 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 special. But it is a great song, absolutely. Oh, thank you. I, it's one of it's just three verses. It's it's always occurred to me that I, I wish I had written a, a cool little bridge for it. But um, it just popped out in three verses. What is it like for you as a songwriter when you have somebody like a Percy Sledge or a B.B. King just uh, 
an incredible artist, and they've not only chosen to sing your song, but there you are, you're hearing it for the first time. It, it's, it, it's always, I am, I'm at a loss for words, which is weird for a lyricist, but um, it's, it's always thrilling, and, and I'm very focused on it, because it, it, it you know, I've always been aware that song a song can be done so many different ways by so many different artists and and to hear the difference for instance between um the Percy Sledge and some of the other artists uh it's it's just it's intriguing and and the Percy Sledge record is like gee I, I never thought of doing it that way sugar sugar you know, record of the year, song of the year. I mean, record of the year sold more than any other by a group that didn't exist called the Archies was, was also recorded by, um, Oh, gee, his name just went out of my head. You probably know it on Atlantic records. Hmm. Who was that? Was this kind of recently a major R major R and B art? No, no, this is maybe the year or two after, after sugar, sugar first came out. I can't believe it. Well, I can't believe it. My mind is... I never had a good memory, but it's, it sure as hell ain't getting any better. But it, it was an R&B record. And uh, Ahmed Erdogan calling from Atlanta Records, say they cut it, and would I come? Maybe you want to do some uh, vocal arranging for a group behind it, but which we never actually did. But I always wondered if... The oh man, his name is on the tip of my tongue. Are you thinking of the Wilson Pickett version? Yes, yes, Wilson Pickett, exactly. Major R and B record uh, re recording artist at the time, yeah. and I always wondered if that record came out first, would it be an R and B classic as opposed to what they you know, refer to it sometimes as a bubblegum classic? But you know, heavy is as heavy does, as they say. But that was that was very intriguing. That same song, same notes, same chords, different approach, different artist, different vibe, and it's it's a totally different vibe. It's it, it, it falls out. It, it would have been on a different chart. Literally, it would have been on the R and B chart. Probably crossed over to pop. But that, that kind of stuff's always intriguing to me. And there's a, there's a not a very big group but i'm not even sure how much success they've had but a group called pang p-a-n-g they recorded walking in the sun and it their, their style and the way they recorded he, he sang the same verse like three times and got half of the lyrics wrong but the sound of it and the vibe of it the attitude of it was just just great really great well this i think you used the word intriguing I think you might find this intriguing. There used to be uh, this jazz club in Atlanta that I used to go to all the time. And they had this, this great jazz trio that would play six nights a week. And one mm. night, I was in there late at night, and the pianist, he was just, he was he was great, incredible. And he was playing the old Richard Rogers song, The Sweetest Sounds. And then it started to go into this incredible, like, just improvised thing. And the pianist, he kept teasing sugar, sugar, like the sweetest sounds, sugar, sugar. Uh, and I, st uh, I went up uh, to him on the break and I was like, Hey man, 
were you doing sugar, sugar? And he winked at me. Like, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, it was cool. It was interesting how he did it. That, uh, you know, I, I, I would think jazz and sugar, sugar would never be in the same sentence. Well, at midnight in a jazz club, anything can happen. Any, anything can happen. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's a good story. I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's a, a, a song that you wrote. I believe you wrote this with Paul Williams. Brand new song? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, right. That's pretty obscure. <laughs> well, you know, my, my wife always, she always calls me the niche of the niche. <laughs> so <laughs> I've always been fascinated with Paul Williams. And I'm hoping you can tell us, what, what is it like writing with him? Well, Paul and I met when I moved to Los Angeles in, in 1970. He had He was signed as a writer. Um, maybe an artist too, but to A&M Records, and I made a a three artist production deal with with uh, with them, and I had my offices on the lot then as well. We we became fast friends, and we we still are. We we had nicknames: the Hobbit. He's he was the Hobbit, and I was the Baz. There's evidently some Australian comic strip where this this character is called the Baz. And he and I would get into all kinds of mischief, mischief on the uh, A&M lot. It's like, those were the days, my friend. It was really fun. And he—he is—he's so smart, and and so so much fun, and and we're just brothers. And I'm six four, and he's probably five four, and you know we're the odd couple. And when we would write, it would just be our friendship turning musical it's as simple as that and and we would you know write these songs i i think we destroyed one british artist who was who recorded something with the title angel in it he was having major hits and then he recorded one of our songs oh i think it was called one more angel in heaven or some weird death song i guess i was known for death songs after Hmm. tell laura i love her and leader of the pack but but it, it just it just flows, you know. We, we it, he and I were when we wrote. It was it, it was just always fun. We didn't write anything about rainbows, so. You also have quite a number of production credits. What do you think, Jeff Berry? What do you think makes for a good producer? Great song, a hit song. I've always said. Recording studios, every recording studio over the front, over the main entrance should have a sign that reads, walk in with a hit, walk out with a hit. Hmm. I mean, to me, a hit song or a good song, sung the way it should be, sung right by the right artist, makes the, the job of a producer so much easier. And here's an example. I, even though I didn't, I wrote the song, but I didn't make the record of uh, Olivia Newton-John's "I Honestly Love You," you know, Song of the Year, Grammy, and all of that. There's no bass or drums on that record, as I recall. So it, it's just Olivia singing the song, and a piano and voices and strings just footballing, as they say, whole notes in the background, basically. And um 
you know, I forget the name of the movie I saw. Man, I never remember it. But uh, they, all the all the music in the movie, and it was a monster movie. I think it won uh, an, an Academy Award or two. All the music was organic to the scenes. All the sounds, everything. Nothing, nothing in post, uh, sonically. And um, I was very aware of that because I'm, I'm kind of anti-score at the moment from for film. But when I came out of the theater, I was with some people. I said, man, everybody loved the movie. And I said, wow, great score, honey. He went, oh, yeah. I said, nope, there wasn't one note of score in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's that's my philosophy on producing. I think the job of a record producer is to present the song being sung by that particular artist and saying, here, folks, what do you think of this? And and get out of the way of it. Get out of the way of that performance of that song. Uh, you know, the, to me, the, the biggest mistake that uh, n- new or novice record producers make is burying the vocal. Oh yeah, you know they know the lyrics, and uh, you know they're they're so intrigued by their track work that uh, they lose sight of that. It's very common in in clubs. You go to you go to clubs, and whoever the mixer is in the club, you know they they want to be record producers, and they think it's all about the kick and the bass, and and the vocal is like. <laughs> And, you know, very rarely, very rarely, if ever, do you hear anything original coming out of the band on stage. I mean, we know the drummer's going to be going, and the bass is going to be, and, you know, the keyboard is going to be playing the chords, and the guitar player's going to be hopefully going home with somebody in the audience. <laughs> but the the original the the, ori- the most original thing on the stage is invariably hopefully the song right and uh, the the two parts of the song the melody and the lyric as opposed to the chords is the part the singer sings is the part that's buried usually in a club you know you're you're touching on something really interesting here this would be the what you're talking about is is at a club at a performance but also, uh, this same thing happens all the time with recordings. There was a guy this year, and you know, he was asking my opinion as a just a another another dude on the on the street or whatever. And I noticed that with each version, and I was honest with him since he was asking me, I thought you keep thinking you're adding all this stuff, and it's taking away from the song. And I think sometimes that happens. Oh, absolutely. It's called overproducing. Yeah. Absolutely. Get out of the way. Less is more. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, theoretically, Montego Bay would be the closest. In fact, actually, Montego Bay, I actually did it, come to think of it. Back then, there wasn't such a thing that I knew of anyway as as a click track. So uh, our, our hand clap vocal was the click track that we played everything to. But theoretically, you put a, you lay a click track down and one instrument just playing the chords to the song. And then you get a great vocal. 
and then you play the vocal and the click track and take off that basic, let's say, guitar strumming the chords or the keyboard just laying the chords in basically for the singer to do and and then start overdubbing on top of a click track and a vocal instrument by instrument keeping that song in view and i say view because i i picture everything my uh, my son clayton uh, a few years ago he realized and he said dad you have senesis i said what the hell is that I, it sounded like some disease, but it's it's the the thing where you you picture things in picture things in color, and I do I picture sounds and the days of the week have a, each have a color assigned and they've been that way forever. But uh, so I, when I say you picture, keep your eye on the song being sung. Keep your eye on that performance. And instrument by instrument, lay them in and mix it, always keeping your eye on the song and see what you come up with. Yes, you you need to decorate it, but not really so much for the consumer. You need to decorate it to make it right for radio. I mean, you can't put out a guitar vocal record, really even though so many records start with one instrument and a vocal. But pretty pretty early on, four or eight bars in, here comes the bass and so on and so forth. But um, it would be fun to put out a record and never bring any other instruments in and see if you can get away with it. Hmm. Interesting how that would be, be perceived today. Well, all all art is about one thing, and that's creating emotion, whether you're a a painter or a sculptor or a songwriter or a screenwriter, it's all about creating emotion in your, in your audience, whether they're listening to it or looking at it. I I suppose you could say a chef is an artist. Yeah, they are. And so do you have taste and smell there, but it's to create emotion. You want to, you want to really, want to eat that food and when they do enjoy it and if you're a painter i mean what an assignment you have to paint that bowl of fruit so good that somebody wants to buy it and hang it on the wall where they live what a way to make a living <laughs> you know when yeah really when you write a song and put it in a record somebody has to be moved enough emotionally to want to purchase it or download it and listen to it over and over again. Yeah. But that's really that's really what it's about. And and yes, the the emotion of course is in the the track, the chords, which is the third part of the song, but most of most of the emotion is created by the lyric, which is you know, pretty obvious and those are the words that are tweaking your emotions. But that's really what the assignment of a songwriter is, to create something that's going to create emotion. And then the the job of the producer is to take that emotion creator and put it in the form that is listenable and saleable. I mean, it's kind of... 
not very romantic to put it that way, but that's <laughs> kind of factually what's going on. Yeah. Interesting. And then, of course, the record company has to get it out there and get it played and so on. If there's a record company. Oh, yeah. If there's a record company. Well, yeah. on that note, I'm very curious to get your reaction to this. I don't know if you saw in the news about Bob Dylan selling his entire song catalog for $300 million. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. Do you think that was a good move? I was. I got all kinds of. Uh, yeah, I, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if he really got three hundred million dollars, and you know, I mean, it's it's. I don't believe it's called capital gains. I think you still have to take that income as personal earned income, which means you're going to give approximately forty percent of your way in taxes. You know, so if he can keep $170 million and invest it, I mean, son of a gun, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, he, if he's making, you know, $10 million a year, and, and I say, yeah, you could probably make more, but I mean, I don't think you'd want to take any, make any risky investments, but just, conservatively. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he can live on a million dollars a month. I'm wondering if you have maybe a story that you can tell us of your time working with Neil Diamond. Uh, well, uh, aside from uh, convincing him to keep his real name. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I said, come on. I mean, to you, it sounds real Brooklyn, but to the world, you know, we're going to have hits and it'll be Neil Diamond. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he heard it is Neil coming for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in this, as far as the studio goes, uh, no. I mean, again, I was just staying out of the way of, of I mean, I don't think I, anybody, I wouldn't have signed Neil if he was just a singer. It's him singing his songs that that are of of such great commercial value but again staying out of the way and uh, yeah i mean i think which one had the trombone solo in it i thought it was kind of cool but you know, i don't recall any particular incidents or things of great interest in in recording all those i would just keep his basically going in with four instruments, piano, you know, piano, drums, bass, guitar, and his guitar, and then keeping his guitar and vocal out in front, and then just adding uh, strings, horns, vocals, hand claps, whatever, uh, after the fact. I mean, that's, that's the way I produce. You know? I always find it interesting when a songwriter reacts to a song, and this could be that they like it, or sometimes they don't like it, but when they're very, very surprised, when they hear it and they say, you know, I did not expect this singer to go in that direction. Has there been one like that where you said, wow, this is really surprising, the, the take that this, this guy or girl had? Well, I, I was surprised to find out, I was surprised to find out that you too 
recorded Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home. <laughs> I thought, you know, when somebody told me that they recorded it, I said, oh, that's funny. Did you hear the one about the, the Irishman who walked out of the bar? And they said, no, no, it, it's it's true. No, they really recorded it. And uh, you're kidding. And But they made a great record of it. Did you ever hear the U2 record of no, I have to Christmas? Say Absolutely great record. And and it doesn't sound odd that they did it. And uh, several years ago, uh, they I, I went into one of my favorite restaurants. I knew the owner very well. And I walked in. He said, hey, uh, you too is having uh, lunch here before they go to the airport. And I said, oh, wow, great. They cut one of my songs. And he said, you want to meet him? I said, yeah, I'll leave him alone. Let him. And he said, no, come on. Anyway, they were very gracious, and I had lunch with them. But it 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 was oh it's always it it was always intriguing to me that they cut it. Elton John also cut one of my I mean the the, the list of people who have cut songs of mine that, are, that were so unexpected and and oddly cast in a way is is uh, remarkable. But I love it, obviously. Well, what was it like for you when you were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame? Um, it was fun. I mean, you know, you know, quite. I mean, I'm also. I was also inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My speech for that was. Uh, I've been writing about love my whole life. I still don't know the first friggin' thing about it, but who <laughs> does? You know. Uh, the, the the coolest thing about the Songwriters Hall of Fame evening was that um, uh, hold on one second, let me. I'm going to keep talking while I try. We don't want to have any radio silence here. But uh, oh, Gamble and Huff, Leon Huff. Okay, so um, the legendary Gamble and Huff, Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, the Philly Sound. A bunch of great hits they wrote, me and Mrs. Jones and so on. They wrote and produced, and they had their own label. But Leon Huff, as a young man, would come in from, I forget how I met him, but I kind of discovered him as a, as a piano player, and I would book him on all my sessions. And he would come in from Philly on the train and um, play, and he just had that never overplayed, never try to show off, or just so tasty less is more and and one day i had my, my assistant you know i said okay you know book a session and get and book leon to come in and then she told me leon is not going to do it anymore and i called him and and um you know as a, as a young african-american man in the family uh, his family didn't think there was a future for that and he was studying to be a male nurse which is a smart thing. I mean, there's always need for that. And and as as hard as it was to take the position of, of influencing someone's life, I did. I said, Leon, I I have discovered talent and I'm telling you, you are exceptional and you are going to be in this business and you're going to go on and do great things. And I implore you to get on the train and come in and play. So fade out, fade in. He, you know, played on the sessions and went on to become Leon Huff. So now we, now we go to the songwriters 
Hall of Fame induction evening. And um, up up to me come Leon Huff, his wife, and his daughter, all dressed up. You know, it's it's black tie thing. And Leon was never never very vocal, but his wife did most of the talking. And in essence, she said, they, "I'll never forget the feeling I had, the way the, the wife, his wife, and his daughter looked." At me, I'm six four, as I say. So when I say look up to me, I mean physically. And she said, "Thank you, thank you so much. Our daughter just graduated from college." And I looked at Leon, and he looked at me. No words needed to be spoken, but I'm sure they are in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now too. And that to me was the highlight of the evening. Wow. They, they, you know, bought, he bought tickets or whatever you do to get in there and uh, surprised me, obviously. I mean, I didn't expect them to show up, but that's really what I remember about the evening. Yeah. They, you know, played all our hits and blah, blah, and made a fuss. And that was great. I thanked I thanked the vocalists <laughs> who who sang on all the hits, but um, that that's the highlight of the evening. That's that's what I remember. What would you say is the best thing? And it's not limited to music, although it could be music related. What is the best thing about being Jeff Berry? Oh, <laughs> uh, I guess. Getting to do interviews like this. <laughs> the best thing about being Jeff Barry. Well, I'll tell you early on, the best thing about being Jeff Barry was when I became successful, I became good looking. And that, that was about the best. <laughs> it, it's amazing how, uh, how that happens. <laughs> the, the best thing, well, in you know more more then than now is I had power. I, I was able to get to the point of having my own labels, where I, I could be the only genius in the room, and I didn't have to please anyone but myself. I didn't have to convince anybody at some label that this this was good. I would just write songs, find people to sing, and make records and put them out which was, uh, you know, the biggest blessing of all. As, and, uh, I mean, that's what I was doing, finding unknowns and making them knowns, hopefully, as opposed to, I very, very rarely worked with names. So that was, that's, that was the best thing about being, uh, you mean, you mean the Jeff Barry, not the person, right? But the Jeff Barry, who I, I consider a third <laughs> a second, a second party, you know, not my, not me. He's a character. I, I suppose you mean being the famous Jeff Barry? Well, or the successful Jeff Barry? <laughs> I, I suppose a mixture of the the two Jeff Barrys. Well, I, you know, there's good and there's bad. I guess you you get to live your life in public, which is not so good. But on the good side. Uh, you know, as a creative person, you had freedom and, and, and some 
clout to Jeff Barry had the ability to, I mean, I could call a label and say, you know, I, I have a song and an artist. They didn't even care about hearing it at the time. It's like, okay, go. And that, that's, that's cool stuff. Oh yeah. And I got to do theme songs for TV and, uh, you know, work with Norman Lear and wrote the theme song for the Jeffersons and one day at a time and family ties. And I got to write for the Broadway stage and for film and great, great stuff. I mean, and it's all just words and notes to me. So working in different genres was exciting and challenging. And so I guess that was, if that's what you mean, that was the, the good part of being successful, being able to just make up stuff, you know? Well, anybody out there, they can go to jeffberry.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y. I never really finished that website, I must say. I, somebody did it for me. Uh, I finally got jeffberry.com. Some lawyer in Texas had it, and a friend called and said, hey, I, I think it's up for sale, or you can get it now. So I got it, but I never really finished it. If somebody really wants to see what, what I did, there's a website or a, a, a place to go called Jeff Barry, the man and his music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's put together by two fans, and they found every single song, every single record that had my name on it in any way, shape, or form. And it's it's tacky looking, but I'm always amazed at, at, the, at the amount of work they put into it. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Paul. What, what were you saying? Oh, no problem. And yeah, I, I've been on that site too. And it's, it is, it's a, it's a great resource, especially if you're an interviewer. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I always like to allow the guest. I mean, you have written songs that people know around the world. And so I, I would just say, you know, what would you say to anybody who's tuned into this show, listening to this broadcast, totally open-ended? Totally open-ended. Well, what do you mean? Well, the, by that, what would I say to them regarding being a songwriter? If they if they are aspiring to be a songwriter, or uh, if they're just somebody who really loves your songs. Oh, what would I say to fans? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I, uh, then to the ones who are listening, hi again. I mean, w without, without the audience and without the fans, obviously, if, you know, there's a saying in the, in the uh, music industry, uh, in the songwriting part of it for sure, everybody has two jobs, theirs and songwriting. People think it's easy and it is. Anybody could write a song. I mean, anybody can cut a stomach open and rip an organ out. It doesn't mean that the patient's going to survive. But, you know, to to be able to write songs for a living and and uh, move people with them is, is kind of fun to be able to do in, in, in during your lifetime. But to the fans, um, without the fans, there are there are no people to have fans. I mean, it... it if everybody is creating, then there's no audience. 
So um, to the fans, hi, happy, happy new year. And um, songs are great. I mean, they're, I've I've always said to when I when I address songwriting classes, I always say if if anybody ever figures out this thing called love, all songwriters are out of business. You know, <laughs> we, we won't need these. And it, 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 the first thing I usually say to a class is, and I'll say it to my fans, you'd think they'd have enough songs by now. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> And considering they're all about the same thing, you know, I love you, I don't love you, come here, go away, uh, you know. Uh, um, <laughs> it, 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 the idea is try to say the same thing over and over and over again, hopefully come up with a, a, a new wrinkle here and there, which I think I've only done three times. I, I, I forget the third one, but I honestly love you. No one ever said that in a lyric before. Which basically says, I, uh, I'm not trying to, uh, the bridge says it. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm not trying to make you anything at all. I just want to tell you, I love you. I honestly love you. No one ever said that in a song before. And then I wrote this uh, song with the Bellamy brothers. I'd lie to you for your love. No one ever said, no one ever said that in a song. You know, the guy, the guy will say anything. It was like number one country overnight, but it's hard to find that little wrinkle about you know parts and people getting together that hasn't been said. So um, to the songwriters out there, be honest, tell the truth, because the truth resonates with everybody, and and uh, don't be ashamed to tell your own truth, because they'll just think it's creativity. They won't realize that you're singing about yourself. Hmm. Well, one thing I've learned from this show through the years, if somebody is from New York, you're guaranteed a great interview. Thank you very much for this great interview. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm glad. It's been entertaining, humorous. I've loved it. I'm I'm glad. uh, I'm glad you got what you needed. It it, it, It was a great interview, I must say. At least you didn't ask me what my favorite color was. No, it was it was really enjoyable. I I must say, I feel like we're ending this year on a high note. So thank you. Well, it, it is for me. And uh, if you ever want to follow up on some subject, I'd be right there for you. That sounds good. All right, sir. Until next time. Well, happy holidays to everybody, and and you, of course, included Paul, and the best of New Year's. All right. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you so much. Ba-ba doodly beep-ba-ba-dee-da Goodbye.